If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Today we find ourselves in week 3 of our series, Doctrine, Our DNA, a series where we're going through our core beliefs that we have as a church and understanding why we believe them, what implications they have in our lives, if any. Then the reason this series comes out is because as people hear about church planting and, and hear that we're planting a church and they kind of don't understand this idea of planting a church, but the question that always gets brought up is what type of church are you? And it's, it's kind of sad that we're in this situation in a culture to where we see this need to define what type of church we are. Um, it's a shame that we've gotten to this point where there's so many different variations of church that, that we need to define what we are. But it's in that culture that we find ourselves. So it's necessary that we define who we are as a church, what we believe then becomes the foundation of what we look like. What type of church are we as defined by what we believe? So we find ourselves in the series Doctrine, Our DNA. And today we see as we look at creation and how God created the earth and the universe, but specifically we're going we're gonna to anchor down and, and not really focus on the first five days of creation that we find in Genesis 1, but on the sixth day where we were created and focus specifically on human as we try to answer the questions, what were we created for and what does this mean in our daily lives? So if you will, Genesis 1, follow along with me. We're going to be in verses 26 through 28, starting off. So if you'll follow along and read with me. In Genesis 1, 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If you will pray with me, we'll ask the Spirit to guide us through this. Father God, I just thank you that, that you've given us truth. God, we, we come and we acknowledge that we need your help to discern that truth, oh God, that apart from your Spirit, we find ourselves in dire need of truth. We find ourselves changing the truth that you've given us, God, and altering it to fit our needs and our wants, God. And we just pray and we come to you and admit that we need your help, God. And we just pray that your spirit would specifically meet with us today, God, that we would move in this power of your spirit, God, that your truth would be given to us plainly, not as we would want it necessarily, God, but how you've given it to us and how you've intended it for us. And I just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what does being created in God's image actually reveal about our lives? We just saw in Genesis 26, 1, 26, and 27 that we were created in the image of God. But what does this reveal about our lives? But to understand that, we, we need to start further back. We need to go to the beginning. In Genesis 1, 1, it says, In the beginning, God created. And so we see here that as people come to the Bible that are perhaps far off from the face. They see the Bible. They think of it as a book. So what do you do with a book? You you start with page one. And as they open the, the Bible, the first verse they read is, In the beginning, God. And, and that immediately then becomes this hurdle for them. And it's with that thought in mind that Pastor D.A. Carson says, In the beginning, God created. If you accept this verse, the very first verse, verse in the Bible then you really won't have trouble believing the rest of the Bible. 
And he's, he's exactly right in there. If we can accept this first verse, in the beginning God created, then really the, the rest of the Bible isn't necessarily hard to understand because this first verse has such authority and weight to it that we as Christians are used to it and understand it, but we seemingly forget the power. We often overlook this first verse, but it's a huge stumbling block for others. And because it comes with certain presuppositions, the first is that there is a God. In the beginning, God. Moses didn't start with a defense of the existence of God. He assumes that we already understand this. He doesn't say, here's who God was, here's what God did. No, he says, in the beginning, God. God just existed. Moses doesn't start with this understanding of when God existed, but that he does. And it's a huge presupposition. And then the next is equally is that God created. And so we see here in Genesis 1-1 that we have this God, there is a God, and that God creates. And so we don't see this defense of God, but we see that if we can believe that, then everything else in the Bible is true and it's accurate. So we know that there is a God. Paul says the same thing in Romans 1. And in Romans 1-19, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so we see here that there's evidence of the Creator in creation. And Paul's not saying here that he, he goes too far as to say that we are not without excuse. So this revelation of who God is in creation is enough to save, but it's enough to, to show that there is a Creator, just as Moses assumes that there is a God and he creates. Paul builds upon that thought and says, yes, there's a God and he did create. In fact, creation itself is evidence of that God. And so we see in creation a creator. When we see something created, we assume a creator and we do that with the world as well. So that's why Genesis 1-1 shouldn't be a stumbling block for someone, but rather a point of worship. When we read these words and see that there was this God, this pre-existent God that was in this perfect community with himself. We talked about that in the first week in the Trinity, in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. They're all one God made of the same essence, and so they're in this perfect community. But what does he do? He creates. And because he creates, we understand that our non-existence is possible. God didn't have to create. He had everything he needed within himself and the relationships of himself within the Trinity. And so we have this amazing God that then creates. And this should draw us to worship. Because not only has our God always been, but he created. And he created us, even though he didn't need to. And so that's why you can read the hard parts in light of this fact. If there is a God that created all of this, then why are some things hard to believe? It shouldn't be that way. You see, this, with this information, we see, we see so many ramifications in our lives. We see so many implications of this God that was existent, that is creating, that, that then all of a sudden we see that we're in His image and created in Genesis one twenty six, and then there's all these implications that happen. So, Today, in the sake of time, we're only going to talk about a few of the main ones because all the other ones seem to filter down from these main ones. So today we understand that we have been uniquely created by God. And as a result of this unique, this uniquely created person that we are, we see that we have an inherent value. We see that in that, as creation, 
we submit to our Creator, and finally, that we're going to mirror His image. We see that we've been uniquely created, and as a result, we have this inherent value. We are unique in the way that we were created. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. We were created differently than anything else. All the other things that God created, he did so by speaking. He says, let there be light and there was light. And let there be the, the uh, void and the darkness. And there was this separation. And everything he did was by word until he gets to us. And when he gets to us, it's different. When he got to us, it was personal. He, he grabbed this dirt and he held us in his hands and he shaped us and he molded us and he formed us. And not only that, that care and the forming and the formation of who we are, but he breathed life into our nostrils. He breathed this breath of life, his life into us. And we became a living creature. You see this, this thought of breathing into us is this close proximity, this intimate relationship that he, he had from the very beginning with us. He formed us, He held us, He molded us, and He breathed life into our nostrils. And there was this very close proximity. We understand that that shows us how uniquely we were created. He cared for us, He molded us, He shaped us. And, and for some people, that, that close proximity is a, is a problem. And it is with me sometimes, you know. We, we have these people that like to talk so close to us, and they, they come up and they invade our space or our, our bubble. There's like should be a radius around us, and, and, it, and it kind of throws you off. It does me often. And then I realize that, that my daughter Kelby is a close talker. She always walks right up in, right next to you, right next to me, and, and talks in this way where you, can all, you can't even comprehend it. It's just this, and you have to ask her to, to, to say it again. Why? Because there's this closeness and proximity and this quiet. And it's so frustrating sometimes. But then I had to realize that it wasn't this close talkness that was the negative thing. It was a positive thing. It was this intimacy intimacy that she felt with us. This security and this comfort, this close proximity. We see we have the same type of value in our relationship with God. It's this close proximity. It's this breathing into our nostrils. It's this face-to-face with our Creator. We also see that we have this inherent value by the quality of the type of creation we are. We see that we are very good. In, in the first five days of creation, we see, and it was good. But when He finishes for day six, we read that it was very good. It's this absolute, it's this authoritative, it's very good. It's not just simply good, it's very good. It's beyond everything else. And we see here, that we are very good. We're the apex of creation. We're the apex of God's creation. We are very good. That we have inherent fact. We have an inherent value due to the fact that we are uniquely created. Uniquely created by our Savior and God who formed us and molded us and shaped us and breathed life into us. And not only were we just good, we're the apex of, of His creation. We read that we are very good. And we see we have value because of that. I often find myself flipping through channels, or I guess you really don't flip through channels anymore. You scroll through menus. But, but often I'll find myself um, stuck on the show Pawn Stars. And it's not because of the, the people. I, I really don't care about the interaction between the employees and all that, but I like to see the things that people bring in to try to sell. And, and they often bring in things that they think are so valuable, and, and it turns out that they're not. 
And then sometimes, rarely, you'll have something come in that's actually extraordinarily valued. And those are usually tied to athletes or presidents or, or famous authors or artists. But we see, just as in the show, that the value of these items isn't in what they are, but who created them. The value is assessed based on who created them, who had influence over this item. We see that it could be the, the very same picture. It could be worth nothing because it's a, a, a cheap reproduction, but the original could be worth millions. Why? Because of the artist that created that piece of art. If you have kids, you can think of it this way, that, that when your kids give you something, this artwork, it might be this undiscernible, you have no idea what it actually is, yet when you get it, you place it on your refrigerator, you put it in your office, and you post it for everyone to see why, because it has value, because your child created it. Everyone else that looks at it and be like, what is that? I don't get what that is. And you're like, shut up, my daughter did it. That's, what I, that's how I get. Because the, the value is not what it looks like, it's who created it. And as a parent, when your child brings you this artwork that might not be anywhere near what they claim it to be, what is our response always? Oh, it's so beautiful. And you post it up and you, you frame it on the wall because its value is not in what the external look is, but who created it. And the same goes for us as we have you have the same value no matter how righteous you've lived or rebellious you've lived. The outward shell that the world sees is not a determination of the value. It's by the Creator that we have. Your value is unwavering because the Creator is unwavering. Our value is not assessed on us, but on Him. Our value does not flicker and wane. It, it, it is not something that can be changed by our efforts or our lifestyle the way we live, our value is placed solely in who He is as Creator. And that can be a very, very word of encouragement that you need to hear today, that your value is not wrapped up into who you used to be, yet who your Creator is. But it's also a, a time of warning that it's not wrapped up, our value is not wrapped up in our success either. It's based on the Creator. So, are you trying to live your life to gain value of yourself? Because if you are, we need to realize that you've been uniquely created and you have value that's unwavering because your creator is unwavering. There's nothing you can do. We can't achieve a higher value than we already have. The value we have is unwavering because the creator who created us, who formed us and held us in his hands and molded us and breathe life into us in this intimate creation is the reason we have value. And that value is far more than anything we could ever obtain or earn in this life. We see also that we've been uniquely created, and as a result, we sit, submit to our Creator. In Genesis 1.28, the last of the verses we read earlier, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. We see here that we are created to work. Work is something that God has given us to do. You heard that correctly. We are created to work. Not every part of work in this is this negative aspect. Work in itself is not a negative aspect and a result of the fall. Parts of work are, but we have been created to work. You see that in Genesis 1.28. He gives us this command. 
subdue the earth, have dominion over it. This, this idea of subdue is making the resources useful to yourself. Not every part of work is, is a negative. Work is a positive thing. We're called to work. The negative aspects of work are a result of the fall. They're not a result of work itself. It's a result of sin that has been brought into the world. We see this call to subdue the earth is pre-existent before the fall. We've been given this command before sin entered. We still were the perfect image bearers of, of God, and yet He calls us to work, to subdue the earth, to grow and use its resources for our benefit. God told us to work, so we do. We submit ourselves under the authority of the Creator because we are creation. But how does God use our work? This is kind of this foreign foreign concept. And, and if you've never understand, understood why we work, there are a few books today that, that you can check out. One is Sebastian Traeger. It's called The Gospel at Work. It's just a good application of how we how we reflect the glory of God or bring glory to God through our work and daily work. And then the other one fits better if you're a business owner and you're a management, something like that. It's called Doing um, Business for the Glory of God. It's by Wayne Grudem. And, and both of these are good resources. Both of them are short, accessible. They're easy to read. I, I highly recommend them to you. And it's in that book that Sebastian Traeger says, our jobs are one of the primary ways God intends us to make us more like Jesus. He uses our work to sanctify us, develop our Christian character, and to teach us to love Him more and serve Him better until we join Him on the last day resting from our labors. Our job is a primary way. God sanctifies us. We see that He grows us closer into Him because as we work, God uses our jobs to make us closer like Christ, to put us closer into this redemptive state, ultimately reconciled back to what we were created to do, which includes work. We also see here that, that Traeger says that develop our Christian character, and how easy is that to understand? I've said often that people aren't lovable. We're, we're selfish and we're frustrating. And so as you go to work with these people that are tired and you're always seeing them, and it's not always a positive thing, you can see that that's Christian character being developed, this patience for people that, that are just frustrating. God can use that to develop our Christian character. He can use that to develop who we are as Christians, as followers of Christ, and He uses that to sanctify us, to grow us. Work is not a negative thing. There are aspects of it are, but the overall arching part of work is not negative. It's actually a command that we are to do. We're under the authority of the Creator. And so when we see that we are called to subdue the earth, we're to make use of its resources, the very room that we're in now, the technology that we're using is an example of work done to glorify God because we've been able to use the resources of the earth to our benefit. And sometimes that falls apart and doesn't work right, but yet it's still this effort to use the resources that we have. We strive to take care of the earth and, and to use that. Why? Because we've been called to do that. We see in Genesis 1.28 that we're to subdue the earth, to have dominion over all the animals. Because as creations, we are under the authority of the Creator. Paul says it again uh, this way in Romans 9, 20 and 21. He says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to his molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make that the same lump one vessel for honorable use 
and for the other dishonorable use. We see here in, in Romans 9, Paul saying that you can't answer back to the Creator. As part of the creation, we, we don't have the authority to, to question where God has put us, to question in what God has done in our lives, to, to give us these abilities. We, we don't have the right to question that. It's God's choice. He's the Creator. We, we see this probably better in, in, in Job. And one of my favorite examples of this in Job 38, if you turn to Job 38, we'll, we'll read a couple of these verses to, to set up. Job lost everything. The roughest life. He lost his family, his livestock, his livelihood. And on top of that, his life was, his body was covered with these boils and sores. The very fact of living was painful and torturous to him. And so what happens? He has these friends come and they give him really bad advice and basically tell him that it's his fault that this is happening. That there's something that you've had to have done to, to make God mad at you to cause this to happen. And Job understands who he is. He has confidence in his character. And he says, I'll never deny that, my integrity. I know who I am. But yet he still falls into this, this, this trap of questioning God and understanding, why me? And so all through Job, chapters 1 through 38 through 37, God is silent to Job. He doesn't speak to Job. We get a little of the conversation between him and, and Satan, between God and Satan, allowing this to happen, but God never speaks to Job. And then in verse 38, after Job's been questioning and frustrated, we see God's response to him. And in Job 38, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I love that part. It's like, here, stand up like a man and get ready because I'm going to question you and you tell me, you make it known to me. And in verse 4, God just lets out this, this two-chapter worth of it. And he starts in verse 4. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And what were its bases sunken? Or who laid its cornerstone with the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And then after verse 7, it just continues for two chapters of God just relentlessly asking questions that Job obviously can't answer because he's not the creator. He goes, where were you when the, the morning goat gives birth? Or who holds back the sea and defines its territory? And all of these things that you see and God saying, can you do this? Where were you when this happened? And what he's doing here in, in Job 38, 39, what God's doing here is he's reasserting himself as creator. Not that it had to happen, that he had fallen away, but he's reminding Job that he is under the authority of the creator because he's part of the creation. And it's the same for us. We are part of creation, and so we have to submit to his authority. We're uniquely created, and as such, we submit to the authority of the creator. We understand our role, and we understand that he is creator, and we are creation, and we submit to his authority. But what gets better is when we realize what we're called to do, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth, to work the earth, to use its resources, to point back to God and, and show the earth that. When Lindsay and I first had uh, children, when we first had Keaton, we never really went out much because we didn't trust anyone with our kid. And maybe you have the same thing. We didn't, we didn't trust anyone with, with our children, with our child. And then when Kelby came with both, and we don't trust them, so... So we didn't go out much because there's very few people that we actually trusted with, with our children because it's, this is something that's precious to us. And only certain people are allowed to, to have contact with them when we're not there and to take care of them that we entrust that with. 
And even still today, I like to sneak in sometimes when I come back. I'll, I did it just the other day. I walked in the back door kind of quiet to see what was going on. You got to keep you got to keep babysitters on their toes, and, and and sometimes if they're in the backyard when we get home, I'll stand in the uh, through the back door, kind of creepy like, but I'll I'll see what's happening because that's our that's our precious child, and there's only certain people that can take care of that. There's only certain people that we entrust with that, and so we see here that when God tells us to subdue creation. He's entrusting us with His creation. This is a, a huge honor. We do what our Creator says because we're under His authority, but we should see that not only are we under His authority, we're completely dependent on Him. He's called us and He's entrusted us into, to take care of His creation, to subdue it, to use its resources effectively, to take care of it, to point glory back to Him in how we do this. And He's, he's given us this thing that He created. But yet we see that our ability to do what He's called us to do is completely dependent on Him also. Everything we have finds its roots in the Creator. Our success is based on the abilities that we've been given by the Creator. Our efforts, everything we have finds its root in the Creator. You see this often with, with athletic ability. and people. We see these people that are, achieve so much athletically and they always try to point glory back to God, and we see that, and we're thankful, and, and I don't know them specifically, so I don't want to judge them, but but do you ever see anyone do that when they have a career-ending injury? Because we don't, we don't ever see anyone, ah, thank you so much for that ability that I had while I had it. Because you see, we need to understand that everything we have is given to us by a Creator, and if it can be taken away. And if it is taken away, or we see something happen, we realize that it was given to us anyways, and we honor Him despite that. We have this total dependence on our Creator because He is that, our Creator. We have this dependence on Him. We must rely on Him. And it's with that thought that, that Justin Anderson, he's a, a pastor and church planner in, in Arizona, says, Do you believe in a God that can tell you no? Think about that. When you come to this choice in life and, and you want to go one way and God says go another way, who wins? Can God tell you no? Do you believe in a God that can tell you no? Because if God can't tell you no, then you don't believe in a God any longer. He's merely a consultant, a confidant, a, a good friend to go to for advice, but it doesn't have to be taken. And so can God tell you no? When, when your choice and God's choice is at odds, who wins? You submit yourself to your Creator. Because if you do, then you truly worship a God that, that creates. In the beginning, God. You truly worship that God because you realize that He is higher than we are because He is the Creator. But do you win those arguments? Do you get to pick despite what He says? Because if you do, then you believe in nothing more than a counselor or, or a confidant, or a consultant. You're going to consult God with your life, but then really, if you don't like what He's calling you to do, you do something else, then you really don't have a God at all to go to. You have a friend, a counselor. If you win more than God, if you win, then your choices are always the choice that you take, even though God is a calling you to do the opposite and you no longer follow God, you follow yourself and God's just this tag along 
consultant that makes you feel good or secure, but in reality, neither of those are there. And we see that we can trust his judgment, that we can trust him because we see that he created us when he did not have to. And because of that, we understand that he loves us. When we make choices in life, we can choose and trust and submit ourselves to our creator because we understand that he has our best interests in mind because he created us anyways. This intimate creation that we talked about is uniquely formed, breathed life into us and he loves us and he wants us to live for him and he, he has ultimately our best interest that's going to bring glory to him in mind. And so we can uniquely see that we can submit to him. We have a better life when we follow God. It doesn't mean that we're going to have all this prosperity. That's not what we're talking about. But, but we see that when we follow God, our life is better as a result because He knows how we should live. Because He alone is the Creator. And finally, we see that we've been uniquely created. And as a result, we mirror the image of God. We are the only part of creation that completely mirrors God. As we can see what we talked about in Romans 1 with Paul, it says that creation isn't, is enough to show who God, that God exists. Yet it doesn't completely mirror Him. It's enough to condemn us, but it's, it falls short of revealing enough of God to us for salvation. And so we see that our image bearer, bearers that, that, that we are is the only part of creation that completely mirrors God. His image is mirrored through us in, in certain ways. Firstly, it's the uniqueness of our morality. Last week we talked about that if we asked everyone to, to raise their hand, if they thought murder was bad, we would assume and hope that everyone would raise their hand. Why? Because it's this kind of a, this intr intrinsic understanding that murder is bad. And even for like theft and lying, is you might not have people raise their hand, but deep down they understand there's something dirty about theft. There's just something uneasy about it. It might not be in the action. It might be afterward, but there's this morality that's been written in our hearts. We see it also in, in, in the smaller things and the more personal things. If, you, if you've ever watched the Discovery Channel or Animal Planet, you see this, this herd of lions that are on a safari and people are watching what happens and say the lions kill an antelope or something. And, and what happens? The, the ones that kill it, do they step aside and let the weak ones of the, of the pride come and eat? No. The, the weak ones get the scraps, if anything, if that is left over, is what they get. But see, we don't do that. We, we have this morality that we can sacrifice for those that are weak. It doesn't happen in the animal world. You, you might see sacrifice some in, in some degrees, but not for the weak or, or the, the desperate. We are alone in that morality. We uniquely can image God because that's exactly what he did to us when he came to us when we didn't deserve it. When he would have been just letting us die in our sin, he came to those that were weak to make us strong, to redeem us, to be back with him, ultimately to be restored to the creation and the image that we were once in. And we see that we can do that as, as people. We can purposely withhold from ourselves to give to the poor. And as such, when we do that, we bear the image of our Creator. We also mirror His image through the uniqueness of our relationships. And we talked about this a little bit in the, in the first week with the Trinity and how we, we talked about that Adam wasn't good alone. And we see that in Genesis 2.18. It was not good that man should be alone. And then we see this awkward 
uh, awkward passage to where all the animals are coming by and nothing's found suitable for him and then God creates woman. And then we see here that this is specifically talking marriage because then you get to the part where then a man shall leave his father and mother and be one with his wife. But, but it goes further than that. Just our normal relationships mirror the Creator to the world around us because our relationships within the church, if you can look around the room, you see the diversity that is united in one Christ. And it's relationships within this diversity that mirror the image of God because we, we saw in Ephesians that there's the, the dividing line has been broken down. There's no longer Jew or Greek or Jew or Gentile or slave or free. There's one in Christ Jesus alone. And so these uniqueness of our relationships being multifaceted, diverse, speaks and images the creation, the Creator to the rest of the world. And we see then, as, as a result, the church should be as diverse as the population within it with, that it finds itself in. So we should see this image being bared of our Creator that is in this relationship because He is in this perfect relationship, all uplifting one another, and we should do the same. And we are made for community, and as such, we are in community. And when we are in community, we mirror the Creator, both in marriage and then in regular community throughout the week, throughout our lives. If we are in community, speaking to each other's lives, we bear the image. But we often find ourselves falling short of this mirroring, don't we? We are mirroring the image of God, but often we find it out of focus or, or less clear than it should be. And the reason is, is because we still bear this image of God, but it's dim and it's darkened as a result of our sin. Because it wasn't originally that way, as we see in when we were created in Genesis 1, we were in the image of God, perfect. Adam and Eve were created in the perfect image bearers of God and what happened? They were deceived and they fell. And this image then was, was tainted and, and, and darkened and dimmed. It was pulled out of focus because sin had entered the world. And we see throughout this story, God's story is He's redeeming people to Himself. He's redeeming people to Himself so that we can then gain this image to be more in focus, to be clearer. When I was in high school, I had a had a Jeep Wrangler, and I loved it, except the except when it rained, because the, the the soft top I had, which really wasn't very clear, anyways, looking through the back, would always get get dirty and filthy. And so you'd go to school in the morning, and I have to wipe it off to go home. And I was going to go somewhere else. You'd have to wipe it off again. And if you ever let it go too long, then it would dry on there. And you always constantly had to be wiping it off so that you could clean and you could actually see this. It was constantly this wiping off painfully all the time. Just it was annoying how often you had to do that. But we had to keep pressing into that. I had to keep cleaning that so that the image that I saw through that would be in focus, would be clear. And, and the same is with our lives, only through pressing into Christ will we start seeing this image of God that we all bear become more visible. It's through this daily and deepening knowledge of who Christ is that we see this layer after layer of our dimly lit image of God becoming more vivid, becoming more in focus as we grow deeper into Christ and as we're sanctified and we start to have this ability to understand that we're able to not sin and we have 
overcome sin because of the power of the Spirit within us through Christ. And as we press further and further into Him, we see that more and more this image becomes in focus and we become better image bearers of God until ultimately, once we have been redeemed in Christ, ultimately He will return and restore all things to, to the way it was. And see, that's the story that, that God has is that He created. In the beginning, God created and we had this perfect image bearer, Adam and Eve, in, in the garden. They imaged Christ or they imaged God perfectly and then sin happened and this image was become has become dim and dark and out of focus and it's not clear and so God then set through this path of redeeming people to him how by sending the one person ever to live as a perfect image bearer of God Jesus Christ he perfectly imaged God because he was without sin the image of God in him was perfect and not dim because of sin, because he was without sin. And then ultimately when Christ comes back, his body was broken. This perfect image was, was broken for us so that we could be redeemed with him. And then ultimately when he returns again to establish his kingdom and restore all things to where they were, we'll see then that we are again the true image bearers who would truly be back into this image that we've been created to be. And it's only impressing into Christ further and further. And that's what Paul prayed in Ephesians, that we would grow and deepen in the knowledge of Him, that we see that this image that the world sees of our Creator in us will become more visible, will become focused and discernible so that then they can see how we are different because we image the Creator. We don't point people to ourselves through the way we live our lives. We press into Christ more and more and we point people to our Creator. We see in the uniqueness of how we are created that we are loved by God. Not just that He chose to create us, but how He created this forming us, this intimacy that we breathe, that He breathed life into us. We see that we are loved by God. We are loved by God and He sent his one and only Son, this to, to redeem us into this again, into this perfect image that we've been created to, and because we see his love because of that. So, so do you believe in a God that creates? In a God that creates so uniquely that you alone can worship him in the way that you do? Do you, do you believe in a God that, that created us when He didn't need to? And not only did He create us, but He intimately formed us and molded us and shaped us into this perfect picture of who He was and, and then breathed His life into us so that we became living creatures. And then desires, when that image is lost because of rebellion and sin, desires to not see us condemned but yet provides a way that we can be restored ultimately to Him so that we can bear His image for eternity. Is that the God that you believe in? One that can do all these things. One that created us when He didn't have to. One that loved us when He shouldn't have loved us. One that died for us when it was our death that was required. And one that comes back to restore us to the image that He has. we see only in that representation of who God is, that He uniquely created us. We see that we have everything that we need in life because of Him, because He is the Creator. And so, because of that, 
we see that we have this value that is unwavering, that's intrinsically in us. We have this value because of who he is, and we see because of who he is that we are completely dependent on him and that we can submit to him gladly because he is the creator. And because of that, and we understand that, we see that we alone in this world image and mirror who he is to the world. And people see who He is. They see the love of the Creator through how we live our lives, through this morality that He's put into us, our ability to, to go to those who are undesirable and yet love them because He came to us when we were undesirable and yet loved us. We have a Creator that uniquely poured Himself into us when He created us. And as such, we have hope. Because if there's not a Creator, then there's no hope. If, if we're just all by chance and there's no hope offered, it's just this random thing that happened and there's no hope. But yet, if you truly understand this and you see that in the beginning God created and we were created in His image of God, this image of God, then we see that there is hope there. Why? Because we know that He loved us. That we know that He created us. That we know that He has sent His Son to redeem us and that one day He will return and restore everything to its rightful place. And then it will truly be as He created it to be. Until then, we just dive deeper and deeper into His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.